This academic year, we will begin to close in on the halfway point between 2009 and 2023, which has been the goal of our strategic plan and which is why it's called the 2023 Strategic Plan. For our new students, you should know that back in 2009, we embarked on a bold plan to remake and rethink strategically Asbury Theological Seminary to face the peculiar challenges which we face and to make Asbury Seminary the very best place it can be. Our, gain, our aim is to be globally connected, missionally vibrant, and biblically faithful. The year 2023 was chosen because that is the year that Asbury will celebrate its 100th anniversary. When H.C. Morrison founded the school in 1923, we can only stand back in awe at his remarkable vision that he set forth in the path that we are now on. And we can look back and see God's faithfulness over the last 100 years. When H.C. Morrison founded Asbury, he established the founding uh, motto and the seal of the center, which we still have to this day. And the founding motto is, the whole Bible for the whole world. Amen? And he said that, of course, when Asbury only had three students. Don't you love the, the boldness of that vision, the whole Bible for the whole world? And that's been, uh, that phrase, the whole Bible for the whole world, then rolls into our mission statement, which tells, it calls us to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. So I want to begin by exiting a little bit this phrase, the whole Bible for the whole world. The phrase, the whole Bible is really a shorthand kind of summary of the Wesleyan message. It is this part of the motto which really roots us squarely in the Wesleyan tradition. The great swath of Christianity then, in 1923, as well as now, particularly contemporary evangelicalism, tends to equate salvation with justification, thereby emphasizing only the first half of the gospel. Namely, how are a condemned sinner... Gets, becomes justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we are clothed in alien righteousness, and we experience the forgiveness of sins. Now that is a bundle of good news. But it's only half the gospel. There are huge implications if we reduce the gospel to that and make that the beginning and end of the Christian message. Certainly the tepid response to the gospel in the Western world can in part be attributed to the fact that our culture has actually not been given, or shall I say, say shown, the gospel, but only a very small bit of it. It can appear rather thin, actually. It can appear kind of rote and not robust enough for the actual challenges we face in the 21st century. It is justification without sanctification. It's individual conversion without ecclesiology. It is forgiveness without holiness. It's personal redemption from guilt without societal transformation of justice. In fact, in short, it's only half the gospel. If you have the only one half of the gospel and lose the second half, it turns into kind of a cheap grace. If you have only the second half of the gospel and you neglect the first, it becomes mere humanitarianism. The second half of the gospel is really focused on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the glorious doctrine of sanctification, and a global missional vision. 
It's through the Holy Spirit that we're not simply declared holy, but we become holy. And so we've come today knowing that short phrase, the whole Bible, H.C. Morrison was calling us to something deeper, a truly a Trinitarian doctrine of salvation, which includes the Father's work in provenient grace and universal wooing of the world. It includes the Son's work in justifying us through his incarnation, his death on the cross, the heron of hell, the body resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. It also includes the Holy Spirit's work in transforming us into his likeness, making us holy, and building the church of Jesus Christ, the community which embodies the new creation in the present age. Because of much of evangelicalism is stuck with the first half of the gospel, discipleship has been turned quite oddly today into sin management rather than holy living. We are so comfortable with the declaration of forgiveness and grace which covers our sin, but we are quite thin when it comes to really the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to make us holy and call us to joyful mission in the world. So Wesley called us to something more, more important the Bible does. The phrase whole Bible pulls us toward that. Wesley knew that if to be Christians that are justified but not yet filled with the Holy Spirit, we will always live under the gravity of sin and the pull of sin. But Wesley calls it to live under the gravity of holy love. That means that we begin re- our hearts have been reoriented. We become more missional. We're not focused on ourselves and our own sin management. We're focused on the redemption of the world in word and deed. We're caught up in a global vision, the missional life, the witness of the church of Jesus Christ around the world. And that is what our 2023 plan is really all about. The second part of the phrase becomes the natural outgrowth of the sanctified life, the whole world, the whole Bible for the whole world. We're not saved for ourselves. We are saved for the world. It thrusts us into the world. It ignites us with evangelism, wholeness, missional living, and church planting. You see, those two phrases reflect both the particularity and the universality of the gospel. The first part of the phrase, the whole Bible, really roots us in our Wesleyan particularity. We're not the only ones who sing this song, but we are certainly the first in the post-Reformation period to sing it well. But the phrase, the whole world, reflects the universality of the gospel. Any gospel which does not compel us to go to the ends of the earth is not sufficiently good news and doesn't remember the initial trajectory from Genesis 12, 3, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. Pantata ethne. Well, by the grace of God, we are making uh, remarkable progress uh, towards our fulfilling our 2023 plan. We are remapping the strategic witness of the seminary, and we're becoming simultaneously more global and also more aware and deeply rooted in our own Wesleyan identity. This fall, we will represent the 2023 plan, uh, consolidating the 55 goals into 25 goals and organizing around the core value to 10 core values of our plan. It embraces global partnerships and our church planting initiative, the remissionizing of existing churches, our hybrid model of education, which will assist the post-traditional student. It brings us again to our solid commitment to biblical studies, including uh, IBS, and theological historical grounding, 
and the praxis of ministry training. It calls us to establish a PhD in theology here. Our vision includes community formation and residential renaissance. It includes our seedbed flourishing and new room networking. Our vision embraces the Hispanic initiative on our Florida Dunham campus, as well as our emphasis on lay urban ministry and lay mobilization. It also calls for the flourishing of our new Memphis extension site. It includes strength in our economic model by expanding our circle of support and re-engineering the very economic engine that runs Asbury Seminary. And we have joyfully received uh, the, our 10-year reaccreditation this past year from both SACCOC and ATS. And if you don't know what those terms stand for, call it, think of yourself as blessed. <laughs> but we have been reaccredited for 10 more years. And this, again, is a, our peer-reviewed uh, affirmation of our vibrancy and the ongoing work of Asbury Seminary. Well, brothers and sisters, we are now dwelling in a post-Christendom world. But there's a big difference between a post-Christian West and post-Western Christianity. Because since Christianity is being rediscovered even in the West within the context of its original missional setting. Old Christendom was built upon alliances which were determined by pivotal political and historical developments. This would eventually produce what we now call the tripartite structure of you know, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant. It's what produced eventually other kinds of deeper alliances, such as Roman Catholic orders or Protestant denominations, which we may or may not affiliate ourselves with. The deeper point is that all of that has had a profound influence on how we think about the church and even how we've trained people for ministry. Andrew Walls has pointed out the enormous difference between writing church history and writing Christian history. The former oriented around kind of our own ecclesiastical understandings and presuppositions, and oftentimes our church history courses often presuppose a lot of things that we may have to re-examine. But certainly as global Christian becomes more increasingly made up of peoples from Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and the newly indigenous forms of Christianity, which now have passed the size of Protestantism, then the whole structure of how we talk about Christian history and our place in it must undergo change. In the West, for example, our cultural and ecclesiastical history flows primarily from the Roman Empire. So what happened in the Roman Empire, and in Western Europe particularly, dominates so much of our thinking and how we understand almost everything in the church. However, having spent a lot of my life in Asia, I can testify that the Roman Empire does not loom quite so largely from the perspective of those shaped by Persian or Han or Ashokan civilizations and empires. This background has dramatically influenced how we tell church history, how we formulate theology, how we conceptualize ministerial training. So we have a lot of important transformations as we've become more acquainted with what God is doing around the world. We're finally grasping the implications, the real implications of post-denominational Christianity. A world living into the new reality of strategic alliances and global networking which unite faith and vision and mission in fresh and creative ways. We're discovering new ways which actually may be recovery of very ancient ways of engaging in more globally informed discourse 
with committed Christians from around the world. We're discovering a deeper ecumenism for the 21st century, which transcends the categories that we've long known. Let me clarify what I mean by deeper ecumenism, because the term ecumenical has been used for a wide variety of things. I'm not using the term ecumenical to refer to any kind of vision for a grand structural unity of the church around the world. There are right now 38,000 denominations in the world, and it's growing every day. There'll be several more started during this chapel message. <laughs> I don't believe that's going to appreciably decline in our lifetime. I'm not using the term ecumenical to refer to any vision of the church which kind of sees has an uncritical accommodation to modernity or post-modernity and sacrificing the essentials of the Christian proclamation. I'm referring to a deeper kind of ecumenism. The original economy of the church, the household of faith, that united around common confessions that Thomas Oden has written about in his excellent work, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy. It calls us to no longer live under the kind of entrenched sectarianism which often characterize our movements. This is not, does not mean that we relinquish our distinctive Wesleyan convictions. On the contrary, I have found that being in dialogue with a global church helps to enrich our own theological perspectives. But more importantly, it leads us to a deeper understanding of that great deposit of the faith, the depositum fede, that ancient apostolic faith which forms our common confession. As it turns out, post-Christendom 21st century world looks a lot like pre-Christendom church of the ancient world. We've seen even more this week or this last week with Kim Davis being jailed here in Kentucky, that we're reminded that maybe the world has changed. And in the ancient church, if you don't know it, there were a long list of occupations in the ancient world which Christians could not have. It could be that we may live in a world where things, people like county clerks and teachers and florists and photographers or whatever else may no longer be accessible to Christian faith. It certainly means that we as Christians must distinguish more clearly between the charismatic truths, the, the essential truths of the gospel which unite us, and the adiaphora which were their legitimate differences among the people of God. It's amazing how a little persecution will draw Christians together. The old world of Christendom sadly permitted and even encouraged the kind of divisions which have marred the church's witness and separated us from Christ's priestly prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17, 11, that we might be one. But the advent of global Christianity with multiple centers of vitality have now caused us to see ourselves first and foremost as Christians proclaiming the apostolic faith and then secondarily and even importantly as reformed, dispensational, Arminian, Wesleyan, whatever else that may define us. The church is a great global diversity and thank the Lord as we center reflects that diversity. But we must also remember that despite our diversity, the true church is held together by Christ himself, who is the truth, and the word of God which he has given to us, which have held the church, those affirmations which is held always everywhere by everyone, the semper ubique ab omnibus of the church. This is more than the unity expressed in a creed, though it's never less than that. It's a deeper spiritual unity which regards and recognizes Catholicity of the church where we see it and find it. 
This calls for new collaborations, a lot more partnerships that we've not yet uh, anticipated. It involves new understandings of global ecclesiology and how it works out in a global context, how we conceptualize Christian identity within new networks and even in our own new room network that we have started. Well, this past summer, I had the unusual privileges, and I have a pretty high threshold for travel. You can't be a president unless you aren't willing to get on a lot of planes. But this past summer, in two months, I traveled 60,000 miles. I still rather do it in a plane than on a horseback like John Wesley. <laughs> but I was able to get a glimpse of global Christianity in a fresh way. My wife and I started out in Tanzania, where our daughter Bethany works with a team of nine members uh, bringing the gospel to the Alagua in a remote part of Tanzania. They've been there five years. They learned the language, Alaguisa. They're the first outsiders to ever learn that language. They've crafted 29 uh, Bible store oral stories for an oral culture from the ghost from redemption, the story of redemption from creation to new creation. This is pioneer work. It's apostolic. It's, it's St. Paul saying, you know, uh, Romans 15, 20, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel where Christ is not named. I might not build another man's foundation. It's that kind of work. And, you know, there are thousands of people groups like that in the world, and any good gospel person won't forget that in your prayers and your actions and your lives. From there, I went from Tanzania to London, where I found myself immediately in post-Christendom world of Western Europe and urban London. There I was caught off guard afresh by the fresh expressions of Christianity in Western Europe. I was there primarily to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Salvation Army. They brought 20,000 Salvationists together, all in full uniform, uh, to the O2 Center in London. 20,000 marching in night after night from all over the world, proclaiming their commitment to evangelical faith and cultural engagement. It was absolutely stunning. On Sunday morning, I found myself in Southwark Cathedral on just the south side of the Thames River. And there, one of our, uh, one of our graduates is uh, part of a ministry there in Southwark Cathedral, and I was preaching there. And to say high church liturgical does not do it justice. This makes the high church people look low church. Massive cathedral. Been worshiping there since the 6th century. They, uh, they you know, amazing building there. Of course, all of the robes and processions and liturgy and candles and the incense. One of the hardest things to get through is preaching the gospel when someone is there beneath you waving the incense. There's the prayers of the saints for your sermon. I need the prayers of the saints and maybe a little less incense. I was literally overcome, as well as by the amazing crowd that packed that church. And Jesus Christ showed up in Southern Cathedral, as he had in the O2 the night before. And then I went from that sun same Sunday night, I was there in Holy Trinity Brompton Church, uh, in, uh, also in London, in the second of their Sunday night services to mirror their three Sunday morning services and ten satellite services in, across London, uh, founded uh, the, whole, the whole HTB network churches but with Nikki Gumbel who founded the Alpha Ministries which has been one of the most successful outreaches to post-Christian people uh, ever devised especially for uh, where his context and there we were you know in this large stone you know cathedral type structure but we had overhead projectors 
the, the, uh, the preachers were in blue jeans and t-shirts, contemporary band playing music. And you know what amazed me? Jesus Christ showed up. <laughs> Apparently, he could kind of deal with a lot of things. So here was Jesus in the O2 Center with Salvation Army. And I tell you, there's, there's a long ecclesiastical distance from the Salvation Army street preaching and the uh, Southwark Cathedral and the incense. And then the HTB, the contemporary HTB, it was amazing to see that God is doing his work and it's beyond any human orchestration. I then came back to North America briefly and I was in uh, San Diego for an amazing conference with the Wesleyans and down in Orlando for the Free Methodist Convention. And I was just again reminded of how wonderful it is that Asbury serves the entire Wesleyan stream. If you are a Free Methodist here or a Wesleyan or a Salvation Army or you're a Nazarene or CMA or whatever, praise God for you. Uh, as well as United Methodists, we thank God for every part of the stream. <laughs> we love you all. I then flew uh, back to Asia. I was in the Philippines, and uh, Asbury's in the fifth year of studying revitalization movements around the world through the wonderful generosity of the Loose Grants. And we were there in the Philippines, and we uh, brought together five Christian movements that we've been studying for two years. And on the one end of this spectrum, we were studying the Jesus is Lord Worldwide Church. It's a Pentecostal movement with millions of members around the world. And we're also studying the Victory Church, another Pentecostal movement, which is planting, among other things, planting churches in malls. I had never seen a major mall, like in, the, like in Manila, where you have like, you know, two anchor stores, like Macy's on one end and a Victory Church on the other. Truly amazing. There are 16 major malls in Manila, and the Victory Church has as their vision to plant a church in all of them. Sunday morning, I worshiped in the CCF Center in Manila, Christ Commission Fellowship, with multiple services, each service 20,000 members. And this Sunday, the Sunday I was there, here we were, the preacher of the day was Oscar Maru from Nairobi Chapel in Kenya, one of our dear friends who is our scholar in residence last year here at Asbury. Global Christianity is alive and well in the Philippines. And we were actually bringing together a conversation between Pentecostals like JIL, Worldwide Fellowship, and, and, Vic, and Victory, with Roman Catholics who are doing some amazing renewal work in the Philippines. For example, the Church of the Black Nazarene. And they would never have spoken to one another if not for the intercession and the mediatory work of Asbury Seminary. And they were amazing, and quite a few of our faculty were there, they were amazing gospel moments during that week together as we saw God revealing that deeper ecumenism of seeing God's work around the world. From Manila, I traveled to South Korea, and there, of course, you find the largest churches in the world, including the largest Methodist church in the world. The grandeur and the scope and the vision of the church in Korea is nothing less than staggering. Uh, Bishop Sundu Kim, one of our trustees, and his son, uh, Chunsuk Kim, pastor the largest Methodist church in the world. And it's been a week there with those uh, brothers and sisters and to see the expanse of their ministry makes you realize uh, how little we truly believe God to do great things in our midst. They just built a 10-story last year, 10-story social outreach center for Seoul, Korea, $58 million construction with no pledge drive. 
just something called tithing. <laughs> it's all called the Kualim. That means burning bush, Methodist church, and they are burning. And their motto is, their scriptural motto is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I went left from Korea thinking I never had really believed that verse. Praise God for the Koreans. From Korea, I flew to India, where I've been involved in a ministry there for over 30 years, almost 30 years. It's actually a family of ministries under the, the western heading of Good News for India. and includes a major seminary, which we broke ground for in 1987, uh, now one of the largest seminaries in India, uh, 10 regional training centers, a myriad of schools and social outreach operations, as well as over 600 church plants from that ministry. When I arrived, it happened to coincide, though it was not a plan, it was a, a God's providence, that the week I arrived was the week that the Hindu fundamentalist group, RSS, which is a very uh, uh, group that absolutely has zeroed in on their hatred of Christianity, they released and launched their point-by-point -point plan on how they were going to eradicate Christianity from India in only 20 years. The reason it was providential was that I was there in India to conduct seminars with senior Christian leaders on how to respond to persecution. The reason for this is because the current Prime Minister of India, uh, Narendra Modi, is a member of the RSS. This is the first time that, this is by the way, if you don't know Indian history, RSS is the group that assassinated Mahatma Gandhi. This is a very radical group. They were eventually disbanded, but they came back, and uh, now they have their prime minister in the seat. This has huge implications for Christian witness in India. This is a huge ecclesiastical distance from the Philippines, where like, everybody considers themselves Christians in some way, uh, to, or to Korea, where you have such a huge Christian presence to a place like North India. What was amazing as we gathered together is to think about what had happened uh, during, just since Prime Minister Modi has come to power, a little over a year ago, not back history. The documented case of violence against Christians, hundreds of them. A church in Haryana had their cross torn down and a statue of the Hindu god Hanuman set up on the altar. A Pentecostal church in Bhopal was raided. The people taken outside stripped naked out in the public and made to watch their church building burn to the ground. In West Bengal, a hundred Christians were forced to go through a conversion ceremony to Hinduism. It's known as, it's a, all across India now, called Gadawapsi. It means homecoming. They're forced to eat dung in public shame for being a Christian, and they're reconverted to Hinduism. In Rajasthan, a 71-year-old nun was raped, publicly raped. I could go on and on and on. These are just things that happened this year, just this past year since Modi came to power. These are all stories not from the, 20, you know, the first century, the 21st century. This is not rogue ISIS. This is the largest democracy in the world conducting these kind of activities. Are we preparing our students to face this? Or do we pretend we live in another place, another time? Are you as future pastors and leaders prepared to teach your people how to live in the new world that we inhabit? I then went down from India to the cold winter of New Zealand, the bottom of the world. And there I was met by our good friend and one of our graduates, 
Dr. Richard Waugh, who were some years ahead of us and challenging, faced some of the many challenges the church, the Methodist church has faced in New Zealand. But boy, have they caught a vision for church planting, for renewal, doing a lot of great gospel work down there after they were literally expunged from the church because of their evangelical faith. They realized that now they had the freedom to plant churches again and to re-evangelize New Zealand in the post-Christendom context that they're in. They're living in a post-denominational kind of context often, networking believers, restoring the Wesleyan covenant. I returned home after 60,000 miles, overwhelmed with God's grace, God's goodness, his amazing work to the ends of the earth. The Wesleyan message of the gospel is being renewed around the world. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> In conclusion, when H.C. Morrison called Asbury to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world, he called it as an ongoing mandate for us. And I want us to take up that mantle. Let us not believe too small or be found with tiny prayers or stunted faith. Let us walk boldly into the world that God has given to us. Let's not waste five minutes lamenting the world or its lostness. That's what the world is. Let's get on being victors with Christ and bringing his redemption to the world. Jesus Christ said right in the face of his own passion, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Do we believe that? This is the great future that we're coming to. All of the headlines are one thing. But never forget the last headline, which is the most important one. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. That's where we're headed. That's what we work toward. That's what we pray toward. That is the purpose of Asbury Seminary, to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world, that he might be all in all. Thanks be to God. Amen.